Welcome to the Doctors of Running Virtual Roundtable, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and science of running and the stuff that we are putting on our feet. Today's episode number 92, we have a full docket ahead. We're going to be discussing a shoe for a full review, and we will be going into the topic of runner's knee and talking about what this umbrella term actually means and talking about some of the difficulty that it is to figure out what's causing it in individuals and why going to the internet and even this podcast to figure out what you individually should do might not work. We're really excited to talk about this because it's one of the highest incidents of pain and injury that runners experience. So before we do that, we are again number episode 82, and it's just Matt Klein and I. David is taking the night off, and Andrew is taking the night off. Uh, David and Andrew just raced today, and they did a great job. David gutted out a really tough performance. He was saying it was one of those days that you, he had a half marathon, you get to mile four, and you just know it's not going to be a good day. So we're proud of him for gutting it out and show us what it means to have some resilience. And Andrea took first overall female in a 5K and ran a PR compared to her last year PR. So she had a really good day and it was fun to cheer them on. Before we jump into everything, I do want to ask all of you a favor. If you have it in you to take 20 seconds to leave a review of this podcast, it helps spread the word about what we're doing. So if you've liked listening to the content that we're creating, you want to help spread it, spread the word a little more, just drop a drop a review and that would be super helpful on whatever platform that you're listening on. So let's go first into our subjective before we jump into our shoe review. And we're going to talk about shoe weight. So how heavy or light do you prefer your daily, daily training shoes to be? How important is weight when you're picking the shoe that you just run in every day and why? So Matt, what would you say to that question? You know, I, I used to be one of those people that like it had to be the lightest possible. I really like lightweight trainers. The more the more I've kind of done this and enjoyed trying different things, the more I've kind of gone, you know, this isn't important as I thought for daily training for workouts. Definitely daily training, not so much. So this year we're going to talk about, you know, the horizon. It's a, it's a little heavier, right? It's, it's, it's premium. There's tons of cushioning other foot, but I found, especially with some of the new foams, the weight hasn't matters as much. And when it comes to just getting through your miles, I actually like something that's, a, that's got a little more weight on it because then when I change into lighter shoes, they feel even lighter to me. So I kind of, it doesn't quite matter as much anymore. I prefer a little bit lighter, but yeah, I think there's a, there's a little bit of a tipping point for me. So I'm currently testing the Pegasus 39 and compared to the 38, the 39 loss went from above 10 ounces to under 10 ounces in my size. And I, I do think that there's something to be said, like in the, for me, the happy space for that kind of daily training realm is at least low tens. Um, you can dip down. I mean, I don't mind something in the in the eights, but even something too light, I don't like running in like a seven ounce uh, like Razor XS2 for my daily training or something. Or yeah, even even going out in the Tri Nusa Nusa yep. Tri, I sometimes have a hard time just staying relaxed and controlling my pace and staying easy. So I kind of like something in that like eight and a half to low tens range. And that's just my personal preference on it. But I think you're right on foams. Uh, they do make a difference and geometry yeah. makes a difference. And it's not just weight, but it's hot weight plus the components of the shoe and the shaping of the shoe. But I don't like too heavy. They just feel heavy then. Yeah, I, I would totally agree that this is a happy medium. And I'd say kind of your weight range was similar where I think when you get to that mid to low seven ounce range a lot of time the shoe is much lighter or it's way too aggressive you're talking like super shoe s and it's just like ah, this is not really want for it for what i want for daily trainer but right. on, on the same note yeah when it gets too heavy and it's like all right now this 
easy runs become like a slog where I'm trying to get my feet up. Yeah. yeah. So there's a there's certainly a middle a middle ground. I definitely agree. So great if you guys have thoughts on how heavy or light you like your shoes or if you've never thought about weight at all or you don't think it really matters that much for daily training we'd love to hear your thoughts on it if you're on youtube obviously you can drop it below if you want to interact with us uh through and you're just listening you can email us at docsrunningpodcast at gmail.com and we'd love to hear your thoughts so let's go into our review we are talking about the mizuno wave horizon 6 this is a premium stability shoe that's the kind of stability sister of the Wave Sky. Uh, they have kind of a similar platform that they operate off of, and they just use a couple unique strategies to stabilize the platform. We're excited to talk about this shoe in a podcast because it's a great platform that has a lot of different elements built into it to create stability. And uh, we, we are really excited to dive into all of them. It also comes out at kind of a 170 price range us dollars and i also think it's interesting to talk about what's the potential for there to is there a value for 170 dollars obviously value is going to be in the eye of the beholder in all of your circumstances that play into buying a shoe we'll talk about why we think maybe it is and maybe why it isn't uh just depending on the the makeup of this shoe in particular so a couple of specs before we go in this shoe is out now uh it releases on june 12th and the weight of the shoe is, this is kind of why we wanted to talk about this. It's 11.2 ounces or 317 grams in a men's size nine. We don't have women's sizes. Stack height is pretty high. It's 38 millimeters in the heel, 30 millimeters in the forefoot for an eight millimeter drop. With Mizuno, you get the eight millimeter drop in the sky and the horizon. You get the 12 millimeter drop in the uh, rider. Uh, um, oh my gosh. Wave. Yeah. In the Inspire. Inspire. Wave, wave rider inspired. or wave So you inspired. have the 12 millimeters in those, 8 millimeters in these. So let's just go right into the conversation about stability, Matt. What are some of the elements of this shoe? Talk us through the midsole components that create the structure of this shoe and why it's a premium stability shoe. And so one of the premium things, obviously, is talking about like just lots of material used here also higher quality material but mizuno's always been different because they've done stability in a different way even back in the day where all we really had was posting even then they were using plates to and and waves and stuff like that to kind of create different densities of foam throughout the length of the foot and that's not really different here well there's no plate in this shoe they're using kind of some of the stuff that we've talked about where they're integrating different components to create more of a guided space right now there is more medial uh stability on in this shoe right because they what they have is there's a what am i why am i blanking on the name right now the energy sorry the, the there's an a softer energy core and then there's a firmer material euphoric um on the outer side and there's a little bit more medial material of the euphoric compared to a little bit more lateral of the softer energy i don't know why i'm forgetting energy right now it's hard so what that's going to do yeah it's a firmer medial material on the inside the rubber here the thick rubber also comes up on the medial sites so like a pseudo post almost but the other big things we always talk about is really wide platform there's decent it's a little stiff but it starts to break in it's it's a rock it's got somewhat of a rocker that rolls you forward it's a little stiff to the forefoot um, very, very mild sidewall stuff, but there's just a lot of things that really help keep you going forward and it doesn't bias you too much. That's what was great about the five. And I, I, I think I can speak for us that we, for a lot of people that are looking for guidance, that was a shoe that we suggested frequently, whereas this one's got a little bit more medial, um, 
do you want to say support structure. structure is better yeah structure is what i'm looking for so couple di- they got lots of different elements they're not relying on one and mizuno's pretty typical for doing that and they're using it in a way that's not overly aggressive where it's just one piece right where it's oftentimes like posting and stuff like that it's one large chunk where you kind of have these waves where you kind of get it the more the harder you land, the more you're going to you're going to notice it. If you land a little lighter, it integrates really, really well. So lots of different things that create guidance in a stable ride without being obtrusive. Because in the past, a premium stability shoe meant something that was like a brick and it was like super high stability, like max stability. Where I think this can actually flex a little bit between a couple different couple different categories without alienating anybody too much. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I think just to even just to maybe clarify a couple things. So this midsole has three different foams in it. The there's a a bottom sole, a top sole, and then an inside that's sandwiched between the two. The bottom layer is the euphoric. And so that's the slightly firmer that wraps. It's the entire width and the entire length. So you'll see it. If you're watching, you can see it's the whole white portion here. On top of that sits the energy, and that again sits all the way around, full full width and full length. And then inside, you can see the, if you're watching again, there's a little red piece on the inside. That's the energy core. So energy core is their their softest, meaning their most compliant. It compresses the most with the same amount of weight as the other ones get, and the most resilient. And so it gives back the most rebound. It's also, from what I understand, a slightly heavier material, which is why they don't use it for a full length because it it might be too heavy for the shoe. What they do with the energy core is instead of it just taking up the entire uh, width of the midsole, they put it on the lateral side. And so if it's laterally biased, you're going to compress the lateral side a little bit easier, which in, in essence gives you a little bit of that post type of a sensation from the regular energy and the euphoric that's on the medial side because you don't get euphoric or you don't get the energy core under your foot. The difference between this and like a traditional post is that normal posts usually have full uh, full width within the midsole, so like the full height. And where in this case, it's not the full thing; it's just a a, a a slice of energy core that's in there. So it's not as aggressive of a post. And for me, as someone who's usually pretty sensitive to posts, I didn't feel this one, and it wasn't pushing into the foot. But it does give you a little bit of that structure on a flatter platform. So it's a re- like you you pointed out a lot of the other things, the wrapping up of the outsole on the medial side of the shoe gives a little bit of structure and resists some of that compression on the inside, but it doesn't push you out either. So this is, this is one of those structured shoes that can work in my opinion for somebody who may have issues with rolling out or want something that isn't going to compress too much laterally, even though there's some bias obviously built in for people who want to control motion to the inside and to guide them forward. Um, but that's a little bit more about the structure. But what would you say when it comes to the feeling of this foam underfoot? Um, how did that feel for you with the combination of those three foams? Yeah, it, initially it t- it was a little firm at first, um, which is pretty typical for Mizuno. And it actually broke in really nicely where it never got mushy. And I think that's another thing that helps the shoe be stable, where it's not a mushy ride at all, despite the amount of material. It's a nice stable bounce and that was what was really weird is the first mile is like this is a clunky shoe and all of a sudden it started to bounce me (laughs) forward and i was like whoa i would not expect that 
in a premium heavier sh- like training shoe like this and it's certainly not meant for any speed work but it definitely once the foam breaks in it bounces you along and it does make it feel lighter than the listed weight yeah because it's listed at 11.2 for, on a, for mine but keep going you got something else. yeah that's pretty heavy yeah the other other fact and i'm going to date myself a little bit on this this shoe this setup in terms of the the midsole reminds me of the nike lunar glide where it was kind of, it wasn't a posted shoe it was kind of based on having three layers hopefully i'm saying that right with the lunar glide but they're kind of graded right so you had different kind of somewhat different materials there and i think this shoe is it was a similar thing where it actually worked really well for some neutral runners and you'd see it really frequently but it still had elements that made it really solid for those that had some medial stability issues. And it was no, it was another one. The harder you you slam into the sole, the more you engage that stuff. Whereas if you're kind of lighter or you had maybe more of a neutralite, it could it still work without really throwing you one direction. So I think it's a nice kind of best of both worlds. Um, I just I think this one kind of using a lot more newer foam, and the Lunar Glide was super soft where that kind of made it somewhat unstable in a way, whereas this one did a better job of integrating that. Yeah, I, I think this is one of those shoes where the firmness of the foam works in the favor yeah. of the purpose of the shoe. I agree. It, too soft in a shoe like this would just... that Kind of like the original... I, I never ran in it, but what you've said about the Infinity React, kind of the, the original... Um, invincible yes invincible i said the wrong shoe that's okay yeah the original invincibles they're just too soft so you just break through any sort of stability measures built in because you could just compress the foam all over the place this one's a lot different i've taken the shoe on two runs over an hour and a half and one of those and they were both easy long runs um hour and a half i think i 11 and a half plus miles for both of them and I, I never felt like the weight was a problem yeah. for me. And on one of them, I did a fast finish. So the last mile and a half, I, I picked up the pace and went down to a seven minute pace um, and a little bit under that. And I, I honestly, it's, it is one of those shoes. The energy core is one of those that gives you a little bit of bounciness. This is not a fast shoe. That's not what I'm saying. But I, I do think that the, without that core in the inside of the shoe it would just feel like a brick and, and a slog. I also, you talk about the shoe breaking in. I think that's true. I think I run a little bit lighter on my feet than you, and I'm still in the process of breaking these in. I have 35 miles on my pair, and I, I still feel like the forefoot is a little bit stiff for me with the level of rocker that it has. It has a little bit of a forefoot rocker, but not a ton. I would love a little bit more flexibility so I could just roll off a little bit easier. Uh, instead of getting more of a rocker, I think it would function well as a flexible forefoot. I also think the heel um, doesn't have, it has some beveling to it, but I think it could be more. I This shoe afterwards, I did have some irritation to my tibialis anterior um, after both of my long runs in it. And that was the one major issue. I know for you, you had said you compressed the foam enough after a couple runs where you didn't have that issue. But I, I think they could just bevel that a bit more, especially laterally because there's a wider platform. So the wider platform for me, you contact a little bit earlier, a little bit more demand, higher moment armor on the ankle. It just, uh, was just a little bit too, too abrasive and heel at the heel for me. Otherwise, I, I didn't feel the weight at all. I felt like it moved me forward really well, and I didn't have any, like I said, no obtrusive nature of the of the stability elements. So it, it worked really well for me in that um, capacity for those long, slower runs. 
I think the other reason I don't have an explanation for this, and I didn't do any gate analysis to actually know if I was doing this, and I probably wasn't because we are the human beings are terrible at knowing what they're actually doing in terms of gate. But I felt like I don't. I wonder if it's that that I always felt like I was starting to get up more on my forefoot in this shoe. And this is another shoe. This is not a rolling shoe. This is it's got a little more bouncy right. So I feel like I was getting up a little, not like I was running fast, but just getting up a little farther forward to potentially try to avoid that a little bit. So it felt like I was bouncing along. And I had the same experience where I would I took this for a couple long runs and I'm like, oh, this is gonna be a slog. And it wasn't. Like the more I kind of broke in, I think as I was hitting the ground harder as I fatigued, it felt nice. And I like just kind of bounced me along. I did not attempt to take do any up tempo work in this. Um, but it it felt surprised like it was going, hey, this is this is just a solid daily training, long run shoe that's gonna just keep you going for long mileage. And it was good. So let's talk about Let's talk yeah. about fit then. Yeah. Uh, we usually start with that, but let's go back to it. Tell me about what your experience was with the feel of the upper, the fit of the shoe. Oh, upper is very high quality. I really like this upper. It the toe box does taper a little bit here, but I felt like in typical and like typical Mizuno fashion, I had a little extra room um, without being sloppy. So I didn't have any issues with shoe with the um Things slide with my foot sliding around. I actually did wear the sockless, which is why I keep smelling something as soon as I bring this close to my face. I'm like, oh, what is? Oh, yeah, because I wore it sockless. Um, it was great. Upper is really comfortable. Forefoot does stretch really, really well. And the thing that I was most interested in is they intentionally designed the weave on the medial side to kind of wrap up around the arch. And I was like, does this really do anything? And then I actually started tightening up. And I definitely, as I fatigued on longer runs, I did notice this and not in a bad way. So some interesting strategic, yeah, some interesting strategic structure in the upper, which is why we always talk about, hey, uppers are really important. I think this is a really good example of taking advantage of that. What'd you think? Totally. Yeah, I, I think this was my favorite upper material for the sky and horizon kind of story that they've done i think that the material is soft and breathable but still like premium and thick and durable like you're not gonna pee my sister every shoe she gets she gets a hole in her big toe area oh yeah she's one of those that big toe you know she's one of those this is one that's gonna last that yeah you know you have some really good ventilation through the the toe box that also allows some stretching uh, the tongue is comfortable. The heel is very, a very rigid heel counter, but it's padded well. And you even mentioned irritation. So I'm assuming, but it's not overly padded. It's not like this huge stuffed, um, heel, but it just locks down well. And it's, it's to use a David term, it's cozy. Um, but I think the one issue I have fit wise is that taper in the toe box. I think they could just open that up. I don't think they have, there's a, there's not really a reason, especially in a shoe like this to have that taper. I think they could really open it up, even make the silhouette more like what's in the wave rider. Uh, and, and they would have a lot of success. I think that if the taper wasn't there, I would go a half size down for myself as someone who oscillates between an eight and a half and a nine. Um, I'm more of a pure nine, but I do go to eight and a half for some things. I would have gone down, but the taper is such that I wouldn't want to because this fits a little bit longer for me, but I wouldn't go half size down because of that taper and I didn't notice it. And I think it's because I had that little extra length at the end of my foot. Um, but really, really comfortable upper tongue. Tongue is nice. I would like it is gusseted, but I think I'd like the gusset to come up just a little bit higher because it's 
it's separated down maybe halfway down the midfoot and I've had to adjust the tongue before it's not a big deal tongue snob situation here but I've had to adjust the tongue before going out on the run and lacing it down for real and I think that if they just brought that gusset up a little bit it would it would be a little bit more secure I you know I think it was good if it fit me true to size I did notice the taper but I think that I'm so aggressive with shoes I <laughs> forcibly opened it up um, it is something I noticed when I put put it on, but then on the run didn't didn't bug me. But I can see those people that might be sensitive. It's just here because the forefoot's actually fairly like it's on the wider side, but it just tapers. Um, why I'm not sure, but it, it does have some stretch to it, so it it didn't really bug me on that. But I would go true to size. Nathan sounds like you. If it wasn't for that, you would go down half size. I would go down. Okay, okay. yeah. So you're gonna have to try the shoe on. It sounds like yes. But I, I was fine in my in size nine. Like I, I don't have complaints about it. But I, I do think it would have fit me a little bit better. Yep. I think one of the things that we've had questions about when we when we've posted about the shoe is how is a shoe like this worth one hundred and seventy dollars? So let's let's talk about that question. And then we've also thought about some different types of shoes that this would be similar to or dissimilar to. Why is the shoe unique? So we'll talk about that too. But when it comes to $170 price range, what, what comes into your head uh, when you consider that sort of price for a shoe that weighs 11.2 ounces and is a premium stability trainer? Yeah, I think the first thing, I think it's justification, right? So I want to make sure the upper is fitting really well. I want really high quality material. I want a super durable shoe. I'm always upset when I get those $170, $180, $200 shoes, $250 that just I blow through in a very short period of time. That makes me upset, which I got to give a shout out to the Horizon 6. This is my left shoe, and I have 60 miles on them without any wear on the outsole. And I have, as my usual... That is insane. That's insane. So again, durability-wise, you definitely get your money's worth. And these, as they break in, feel even better because the core seems... All the stuff, the foam seems to break in more. So I think from a durability standpoint, definitely, especially as shoes seem to be lasting less, you know, less long, or they're lasting, I should say, for shorter periods of time. Let me use better grammar there. Um, I'm expecting really, really, especially if it's a stability shoe. I'm, I'm ex- it's yeah. It's not, 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 yeah, not yeah, lasting yeah, yeah, longer. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to. It's try not, to, not, not. Don't do that. Don't please don't do that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, that was good though. Um, the I'm expecting premium midsole materials and for it to feel really good. And if anything, I think one of the key things is, hey, I want this to adapt to me. I want, you know, for 175 bucks, I really shouldn't have to spend that much time breaking in a shoe like this. And it should be able to work well for, you know, if it comes to a premium shoe, these typically don't work well for speed. Although in the, the higher cost range is getting more normal. So for some of these, you know, racing flats and the super shoes, carb fiber plated shoes, but for training shoes, I'm going to want it to feel good underfoot. I'm definitely going to want a little bit of a bounce. I think that's required now to have some more bouncy midsoles out there, especially with the materials that they have. And I just want it to feel good all day long. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. I th- I mean, obviously value, we've talked about this before, Matt, but just value is obviously so person dependent because $100 to one person and $100 to another person is completely different. So there's the question of accessibility to purchasing a shoe. Uh, but I do think, like you referenced, I think the one thing that this shoe has going for it in the $170 realm is the durability of the shoe. From from an outsole perspective, they put a lot of rubber. So you're going to have that. It's going to stick there. And obviously for Matt, it's not 
blown away at 60, which would be typical for him. 30 is typical for him to blow it yeah, through some rubber. Yeah, tw- 25 to 30 is like, oh, the outsole's gone already. And I think that's a big deal. I also think the foam of the Energy Core um, is a foam that's been tested in a way that's shown its resilience over time as well. So within testing, they've had resilience that it kind of retakes its form, but also it does that for a long period of time. So it's a it's a durable foam that gives you kind of the feel and that bounce of the of the shoe so that's going to last you and the rest of it is just all structure so when you have a shoe that is meant to provide guidance and the shoe is structured enough and has enough within it to to even if some of it breaks down and compresses it's still going to hold its shape i think you have a shoe that lasts way beyond typical for people in this shoe so there's another argument for why a higher price point can be can be justifiable and obviously it comes down to the i mean this is whatever this isn't our area of expertise but it comes down to the cost of what do these companies have to pay to get the materials and get it made and all these kinds of things so why they set their price point is not not our our decision or our thoughts but you do get a lot of durability out of this shoe and i think that is some value so matt when you think about other shoes that are in a realm like this, you kind of mentioned that this is a uniquely structured guidance shoe or a uniquely created guidance shoe. What other shoes, you know, there's shoes like the um, Kyono Light and the Vongo, some that use slightly different methods to create stability. Is this like any of those shoes or is this unique in a different category or what would you liken it to? You know, I think the sh- the two shoes that come to mind almost immediately when comparing to the Horizon would be the not the light, but the Asics Kiano, and then probably the Hoka Gavoda. Am I saying that right? I have no idea. Gavoda is that a- Gaviota? Gaviota. Oh gosh, yeah. I have so much trouble pronouncing things to begin with, and then they throw that at me. It's like, okay, it's not about me. But, <laughs> um, yeah, those two shoes would probably what I would compare it to most. Um, the difference is, especially the. Gaviota, did I do that right? Yeah, that's right. No? Okay. You got it. Um, is that the Gaviota is still using an EVA based foam, if I remember correctly? So very, it's got a far more narrow fit underfoot, and while there's a lot of foam underfoot, I think the material is a. We we apparently have that shoe on the way. Um, I've tried some of the older versions, and it just the EVA foam tends to get really, really firm underfoot. Yeah, it's very rockered, so it's a rolling ride, and I actually think it works better as a walking shoe. But the foam just isn't the same as a shoe like this. Um, and yeah, it's because this just has such a more premium foam here. Durability on the Gavoida, I've heard, I, I don't know, I've heard some Gavoida, I've heard some issues with that but i have to test it to know whereas this one is a tank um but in terms of like the midsole shape like in terms of the width kind of reminds me of that the kiana reminds me of that because of the materials being used in the midsole where they threw everything the whole kitchen sink in the recent kiana there's so many different gels foams all kinds of stuff in there and although the the upper is is a, a knit so it's a little bit different but I think because there's so much stuff going on to provide a provide a balance fit, I'd say the Kiana is probably a little bit more similar. But I prefer the Horizon because I think the stability is integrated much better and the ride is more bouncy. Where for me, the Kiano is like, okay, this is going to be a great shoe for those who are used to the Kiano. But that one, I noticed the weight the entire time and did not like doing longer miles in. The Horizon sick, it's six, six. 
The Horizon 6 was bouncy, and it's, again, still a little heavier, still a little firmer, but it wasn't mushy and heavy like I felt the Kiana was. So I, f- I personally like the Horizon 6 the best of all of those just because of those reasons. I think the stability is integrated a little bit better. Are there any neutral? So I think this could be one of those shoes you consider in the stable neutral realm just because of the lack of kind of obtrusive nature. Yeah. Are there other shoes like is Kenzie Blast in this conversation at all? I mean, that's super rockered. I, n- I haven't ran in it. Yeah. Um, I, but are there any other stable neutral shoes that would go in there? And I wouldn't even the Kenzie Blast is not stable neutral. I found that un- unstable neutral personally. For me. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I think this is pretty unique, honestly. Um, because the, to me, the sky wasn't stable neutral. It was definitely, definitely neutral. And I think the wider platform and yes. the way they set it up works a lot better for people that just need a really well-grounded shoe that still has a little bounce, but that can be comfortable for long periods of time. So it's p- pretty unique at this time point in typical Mizuno fashion, because they don't typically make shoes that are similar to other companies especially when it comes you know the eight millimeter drop was really interesting i know they've been slowly working their way down but it's always interesting to me when they do that a non 12 millimeter drop shoe but i think the way they set up the three foams i guess you could technically say four right if you count the outsole but i think it's different than a lot of the other ones out there yeah i I love just the subtle changes of placement of the of the core i think it was really really great um, so I, I agree with you completely on that. When we talk about, we always kind of try to figure out who is this shoe best for. And we've got a couple guides out there. We're working on a, a walking guide. And I have to say, this was a one that really worked well for me wearing all day long in clinic. So if I'm part telehealth right now and then part uh, in person for physical therapy with the, the clinic, uh, the Kaiser clinic that I work at. And when I was on my feet running around all day, I would wear, I, this is like a really comfortable clinic shoe, especially if you're on hard surfaces for long periods of time, you don't want something jamming into your arch, which is for those of us that, you know, start to fatigue. So walking, standing, especially longer standing, you, a lot of times people's arches, some of those muscles are fatigue. If you're standing for eight, 10, 12 hours a day, this was a shoe that didn't do that. It was just comfortable their foot. It was it had a nice amount of cushion for standing and walking, but it wasn't mushy where I'm like, okay, now my back or my knees, all this kind of stuff is starting to ache, which is sometimes what happens when you're standing on a super soft surface for longer periods of time. It was like, just got out of the way and it let me do what I need to do without my feet hurting, without, you know, anything aching. It provided, it's like, again, we've talked about this it seems to provide stability really well in an unobtrusive way. It's like, I'm just going to help support you and get out of the way. Right. I think you're spot so on. I got like give it a shout out for people that are looking like, hey, I need a little bit of support, but you know, I'm standing on my feet for long periods, I'm walking for longer periods, and I want a shoe that's super durable, it's gonna last, but also supports me for those long periods. This is one that kind of has especially for testing it, right? And I've I've been wearing it doing this for weeks on end with like 10, 12 hour days. It's been a solid yeah. one for that. Where people always ask us, hey, what's what's a great shoe for I stand long periods at work or I walk for longer periods i think and i'm not a runner i think and i might need some stability i think this would be a good option because of how well it's integrated and that premium yeah that premium stuff can't comes yeah. alive then one of the things i did want to bring up we uh if you've been following us you know every review of ours has a section on stability a lot of our posts maybe on media speak to the structure or the stability or the guidance of a shoe 
We've been starting to get some questions and some comments relating to, wow, man, you guys, again, there we go with the stability talk. And I I think one of the things that we want to make sure people know about our philosophy of footwear is not that more, more stability or structure or guidance equals better. That is definitely not what we would say. We, we would say that everyone is super individual and at different times in your running career, there's going to be a shoe that is better for your needs and that shoes are tools. And there is going to be a time where a barefoot zero, like a X E R O zero shoe is a better option for somebody than something like this in the horizon six. So we are not a, in the camp of a shoe needs to be stable to be better. And I think one of the problems is that we have a a grading system because people like grades or scores or whatever. And part of our grading system is stability. And that's on an A to F scale. Just because we give something a C doesn't mean that that's a bad, like a bad shoe. The shoe could have a C stability and that's where it gets messy, right? Because a C is looks worse or a D looks worse. But just because a shoe is unstable doesn't mean it's a bad shoe. It's just who is that for and when and why and what requirements might that put on somebody in the same way? What, what kind of requirements does a stable shoe put on somebody? It requires you to allow a shoe to act on your foot or your body in some way. And we talked to, um, you know, Matt Trudeau and he talked about how putting different types of densities under your foot does change mechanics at the knee. So if that's bad for you and that's bringing you outside of your preferred movement path, it's not a good shoe for you. And that'd be too much stability. And so better, more stability does not equal better. I just wanted to make that point here. And I think maybe you'll see it in other places and not everyone listens to our podcast who reads our stuff. Cause it's, but I, I think that's worth saying. I think I, I mean I want to just I, like just emphasize what you said on the fact that yeah stability is this kind of moving target with we're trying to really figure out how do we uh, quantify this right so it's very hard because everybody's going to have different needs and then some people don't need any additional rigidity or guidance they don't like that so hopefully you know maybe we need to start rethinking how we're grading that because the goal is to help people figure out to go hey what elements of this shoe does it have is are present and does that work for me or not obviously you don't want to shoe where your foot's hanging over the side of the sole or you're like rolling your ankle every single time you put it on but yeah stability is something we need to do a better job of defining especially because it's changing because you know as as nathan as you mentioned and not too long ago stability was all about is there a post or not that was the only thing defined or was there a wedge in the midsole that was kind of a that was a sexy thing you know 10 years ago like oh it's got a wedge it's different but in the last speaking of sexy things do you like my bucket hat yes i love the bucket hat fractal bucket hat yes yeah hey shout out there keep going sorry um i think now things are changing so much where you know even you know some of these staple stability shoes for years are no longer using posts they're using different things like guide rails or sidewalls or wider soles and people are experimenting with the stuff that i think is going to work for a larger variety of people i mean it was it's always interesting to me Nathan, when you tell me a shoe is working for you, the spill is you like the horizon. I'm like, what's going to happen? Because Nathan, so you and uh, Andrea, they're very often very sensitive to stability elements, but not having any problem. And I think that's kind of where I'm hoping things go in terms Tempest of too. yeah, the Tempest, right? Where it's it's a shoe that can adapt to your gait, and it's, it goes back to I really encourage if you haven't listened, listen to the talk with Matt Trudeau. Where it's going, when we talk about, maybe stability isn't the best term, can we talk about guidance? How well is the shoe helping you optimize your running gait to keep you moving forward? Instead of deviating way off to the side, 
And yeah, maybe we need to have that conversation going. How do we better define this? I think Matt's, Matt Trudeau is doing a great job. Um, it's still a bit of moving a target because everybody is so different and trying to optimize this for so many different people that move in so many different ways, you know, not to go off on a tangent, but like, you know, all the, all Matt, the, go on a tangent, he- heaven forbid in terms of like every person's going to have different joint axes in their ankle, their, in all the foot bones at the knee, at the hip, like everybody's going to move differently. Gait is, is as if not more individual than your fingerprint. Like that's how unique it is. So trying to optimize that for in one shoe is really hard. But I think where people are moving with stability shoes, we're trying to go, Hey, let's go guidance. Let's just help people get forward is much better. And so that's why I think the term stability is changing and we don't want you to be scared of it. You just have to ask yourself, do I actually need this? So if doctors are running, if they're talking, this is like, there's a ton of guidance here. If I don't need that, I don't need to worry about that. I need to be cautious with this shoe. Versus, hey, if I know I need this, I need to pay attention to what they're saying. So you just got to see if that section is applicable to you. Yeah. And is it less of a, is there more or less guidance and more of a, what sort of guidance does it give? Right. And maybe that's, and then I I think that maybe when we write our reviews, there's a way where we take the stability section out of the actual overall grading hmm. and just do a stability section and write, it gives guidance, lateral, medial, yeah. um, or like, lots little yeah and using more qualitative words than being a part of our overall score yeah because you know, that's a good very idea neutral flexible shoe shouldn't be said oh it's a worse overall score because yeah. it's not stable it's not meant to be a structured shoe right. and a guidance shoe so we can we can that we should move on yeah we'll have to talk about that any thoughts put that in the comments that's a fun conversation because we're open to this yeah in terms you can of going, comment that too we we are always trying to what op- do you want to hear yeah. from us we're always trying to optimize we, how we communicate and how we grade stuff because ultimately you, the listener or the, the the viewer, is who this is really for. So if you have an idea going, how can we optimize this to better communicate with you, let us know. We're open. And part of the reason we use the word stability is because that's what people search. So if people search it, they're going to be able to read our content, which we hope we bring some light to the conversation on stability. Uh, and anyway, that's a whole other part. But we are going to move on today. We Oh, wait, where is it? Here it is. Today, um, speaking of heavy shoes that are really comfortable all day, the Carhu Lifestyle Collection is honestly been super comfortable for me. Um, I have the Trampus. And what I, one of the things I like about these shoes is kind of all of their lifestyle um, models are almost inspired by different running models through the history of running shoes. And... The, they and we we all got a pair of these that we've been using a ton. BJ's our audio engineer. He's been using his a lot for work and going to baseball games. And one of the things that he finds unique about it is that you have a shoe that's made for lifestyle that's actually cushioned really well, like a running shoe. So you have the style and the pop of kind of the car who, and hit. so I have a pretty subdued model in the Trampus, but he, he has the Synchron 2.0 and it has a lot more pop and character. Um, unless you like, I mean, I like, the, I love this subdued nature, but his has like a lot of pop and really cool colors. And so, you know, I think the uniqueness of having a shoe that lasts you all day and is fashionable is pretty sweet. They Carhu did just release two new colorways of the Fusion 2.0, the one that our audio engineer has, and a new color of the Legacy 96. They're always coming out with sweet new colors. 
And um, if you head over to carhu.com, that's K-A-R-H-U.com. And if you use the code D-O-R-2022, D-O-R-2022, at the time of checkout, you can receive 20% off your pair of $100 or more. So they, they obviously, they do their running shoes that we've reviewed in the past. But if you're looking for something for daily life that is cushioned and has some style and is inspired by running shoes, uh, check out their lifestyle collection at carhu.com and you can use that code. DOR2022 at the time of checkout. We don't get kickbacks, but it would help you guys get it on your feet for a little bit cheaper. So here we go. We are going to move into our final section of the night. We get a lot of questions about this, this runner's knee. And so we're going to do what we can to talk about this. Here we go. So Matt, why don't you tell us what, what people might mean by runner's knee or where do you want to start with this conversation? Because it's such a huge, huge topic. I guess my first question is for, for us doing this topic. So I'm sitting on a Swiss ball right now. Should I go back to kneeling just for the purpose of this or no? Oh, gosh, no. Please stay just... in your Swiss ball so you don't pass out. Yeah. There have been times where you've almost passed out <laughs> yeah. on this kneeling. For those so. <laughs> those who don't know the way the, the my camera is set up and the exact height of where my computer is, like it was kind of optimal for, you to, for me to kneel and I would like lock my hips and my oh. knees out. And then I'd, they'd, they'd watch me like get lightheaded or turn even whiter. And I was like, well, I had to stop doing this. I should probably sit down. So in typical yes. knee fashion, I'm sitting on a Swiss ball. So if you see me, if those who are watching, if you see me bouncing, that's, that's why. And that's yes. what all of my professors whether in phd or pt school had to deal with is i just took swiss balls with me everywhere because i'm that bouncy person (laughs) anyway back on topic for once when it comes actually yeah i think i think one of the things that i'll say first and then i'll I'll pose a question to you is the reason we do want to talk about this is not only because people are asking us about it but because of how prevalent it is so in new runners 17 percent of people are going to at some point encounter this in in people who are just starting running in their first one or two years. It's the most common site of injury for runners in general. And it, but it usually does happen in kind of younger, middle-aged active people without like a history of a specific injury. So it's so common. It's happening to everyone. People use the term runner's knee. We prefer patellofemoral pain syndrome. Um, And Matt, let's take it from there. Kind of what actually is patellofemoral pain? pain syndrome what does this umbrella term mean? yeah and when we say umbrella term it means any pain in the front of the knee or even sometimes around the sides you'll see this diagnosis this that it just like it's a catch-all term it's not really specific it's not specific to the patellar tendon it's not specific to the patella it's not specific to any of the structures up front there there's all kinds of things there there's fat pads there's these tissues called plicas there's bursa it's not specific. It just refers to somebody to a someone that has pain somewhere in the front or front medial or lateral knee. So it's really a catch-all. Something surrounding the area of yeah, the kneecap. Somewhere, it doesn't need to be yeah. the kneecap, but somewhere in that general area. That's literally what patellofemoral pain syndrome is. Yeah. That is runner's knee. Yeah. And not very specific. You can see where that starts to pose problems in terms of why is this happening and what do I do to fix it? I think that that really is part of the part of the problem. Yeah, that's part of the problem because it can be of, confusing. Because I think one of the challenges people are like, oh, you know, I have knee pain. What do I do? And then, you know, those of us who are a little more experienced clinicians are like, oh my gosh, that could be like anything. Like, there's all kinds of things that can contribute symptoms there. 
I mean, common ones is irritation of the patellar tendon, right? Or even the patellar ligament, right? And those are two separate things, right? The patellar tendon's technically on the top. The ligament's the one on the bottom below the kneecap. It could be an irritation of the kneecap. It can be a from a quad muscle weakness. It can be from hip issues. The other common one that's not surprising is sometimes we see that as a uh, referral from the spine as people get pain in the front of their knee. And they're like, I've done all this stuff. Hasn't changed. And it takes five seconds of pushing on their low back. And they're like, oh, that's my pain. It's like, okay. So you can get referred pain. And that's what we want you to understand. We're not trying to scare you. We're just saying, hey, you really need to get evaluated because there's so many things that could seem to contribute. And I think that's why people kind of get frightened when they're like, oh my gosh, I have knee pain. But just get evaluated, right? Have somebody good that can take a look and help you figure out which one of these things is it. Because as soon as you can figure out what it is and why it's there, it's much easier to treat. Right, right. So um, I I think when you look at kind of common patterns that and maybe common patterns isn't what you see, what are some of the patterns that you see in people that come in and say, I'm having this knee pain, I'm a runner, what's going on with me? Why is this happening? Yeah, and that's going to depend also on the age, right? So we and kind of going back to some of your demographics and the incidents. So younger runners tend to be the ones that typically have this more frequently. It's not that older runners, so masters, it's not that they don't have it, but older runners tend to have more muscular stuff like Achilles and calf issues, hamstring issues. So very much typically younger. This, what I'm about ready to say, doesn't always happen. It's very, we found this is very individual. Some people will have, you know, they'll they'll tend to use a lot of knee flexion, their knee bends, maybe a little bit too much. Other people, they don't bend it enough, right? When it's, Usually it's very common for people to have symptoms when they're landing, right? Because that's where they're shock absorbing. It's the most force. Some people have their knees go way too far forward, right? But not everyone. Other people will have a little bit internal rotation of the hip where they're getting a little bit of shearing on the patella. Again, not everybody has pain with those movement patterns. It's very specific to the person. And another common one is, you know, hearing about a history of overtraining is another really common one. It's like, hey, they've got these movement things and it didn't bother them until they really started pushing faster than their body could recover. Are some of the things there's also... The most common one, it's not as common with non-weight bearing, but like weight, like again, impact or weight, putting weight through the leg is where you sometimes get, get it. Symptoms with going downstairs, if it's really irritable and it's not just running or going down hills is a common one. And then some people you'll get a little bit of this, it's, it's like a giving way where people start freaking out thinking, oh, I've torn my meniscus and it's really just oftentimes it's more tendon or just a, a pain inhibition where it hurts and the kind of muscles like go, nope, I don't want this. Um, is another somewhat common one occasionally, not everybody, yeah. but yeah, there's all kinds of things. I think, I think with that, yeah. I think when you, when you think about this, the, what people come in and what they report in terms of what they're feeling, when people come in with some sort of patellofemoral pain syndrome, the pain can actually be rather sharp yep. and it can come on rather quickly. So it's like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Oh, my knee started bugging me. And then the next week it's like, oh man, like if I try to go up a step, yep. I get this sharp shooting pain through like the front of my knee or the inside of my knee. What's going on there? And then when I'm going downstairs, sometimes I almost like collapse and fall down the step because it hurts so much. People have given, you talked about the giving way stuff. So people who tear their ACL, sometimes their knee literally just buckles on them and they fall down. I had a, I actually evaluated someone a couple days ago who was ACL deficient. And that was the case. He had, was fallen a couple times a day because his, he just didn't have the ability to stabilize because he lost the structure in his knee. In the case of patellofemoral pain syndrome, you get that same feeling like you're not for everybody, but if somebody's going downstairs and they get that sharp pain, 
Matt, you mentioned muscle inhibition. Yep. It sends a signal up to your brain. It says, hey, we're hurting. Shut everything down. Shut it down. Nope. And so the muscle feels like it's going to give out on you. Yeah. And it's called pseudo giving way. So giving way would mean you have actual structural and uh, lack of, st- you'd have instability within your joint. This is more, you're inhibiting the areas to try to protect it. And you can see that with patellofemoral pain because the pain can be really sharp. Part of the reason that pain can be so sharp, and I think this is interesting, there's a lot of anatomical features around the knee. Matt, you kind of referenced that. There's fat pads. There's different ligaments. There's different um, cartilage in that area. There's the it, other structures between the patella and the femur. There was this guy over in Europe who is a researcher, and he wanted to know how innervated are all of these structures. And so to figure this out, he actually had somebody open up his knee. When he was awake, he didn't go under. And he, he had somebody take a, basically take an elect, electrode probe and zap all these different structures, and he would rate the pain of each of these different sections. And what they found out is, you know, things like cartilage, like our articular cartilage, no nerve innervation, basically, oh, that's because so there was no pain. They would, they would zap it, and there would be nothing. Then they would go to something like the meniscus, maybe like kind of mild, not that bad. And then they would go to the fat pads and fat pads are these like kind of, uh, you know, collections of adipose tissue that cushion certain areas and, um, allow for some lubrication, all these kinds of things. You do need them when they, by the way, you you need them. Yeah. These are good. Yeah. They're super important. And they sit kind of just below the kneecap on both sides and they have wrappings in different areas. When they hit that with the probe, that was what shot him through the roof. And so these fat pads that sit around the knee, they, they can get inflamed pretty easily if you're doing certain activities too much and you're putting different sort of tension and stress. And if they get irritated, if they start to swell up, that knee has a lot of articulations and can pinch a lot. And so if you pinch something that has a lot of nerve innervation is super irritable, boom, there you go. So we can thank this crazy scientist who just wanted to know how innervated everything is so we, we know some of that. Uh, but that is why people have a lot of issues, even though it's not like this big injury. It's something that can be really, really painful because the structures around the knee have a lot of nerve innervation. So one of the tests that I do with people is a step step test. And so I have them do a lateral. So they stand on a stair, they lower themselves down and touch their opposite heel to the ground. And then I compare that to the other side, depending on how far they can go, how much pain they have. That is a way that you can say, hey, this might be patellofemoral pain. Then I do a taping to see, hey, does your pain change with this taping if it does hey it's probably not something super structural it's probably just irritation to one of these tissues around the knee let's figure out what we need to work on for you so have you used taping at all with this what do we know about taping with patellofemoral pain syndrome what do you think about it yeah that's a good question i used to do a lot of taping i haven't done as much recently um i know there's a use i think it's probably better if you speak on this i haven't used it very frequently at least not recently yeah i yeah, I I would say that I use I use a certain type of taping for testing purposes and acute management purposes. So people who come in with recent onset of patellofemoral pain, I use taping as a way to decrease symptoms in the short term so that we can strengthen and keep you active. There's pretty good evidence on kind of a medial glide taping um, being effective in pain reduction for people with patellofemoral pain syndrome that don't have any other sort of you know 
arthritic changes or uh, any sort of major meniscus tears or anything like that. And so doing a medial glide taping, which is very simple to do, I actually teach my patients to do it, that can allot you some time to keep moving, to do the strength training and neuromuscular training that uh, that you need to recover and feel a little bit better while you're doing it. So I use it in the short term, but it's not a long-term solution. And I, I think that bracing is maybe in the same camp. I don't ever have people with patellofemoral patellofemoral pain get a brace as a runner. There are some cases for people who want to use it a little bit uh, like all day at work every day if they're a heavy laborer that I'll get them kind of these certain braces that I found work better. But for my runners, I usually am just doing a a taping in the short term if it's something that it helped during their evaluation. Yeah. So. There's there's some on the bracing stuff that has to be really specific to and people ask about braces all the time, especially for knee. There's actually some research that suggests that you actually move more if you put in in ways that might not be great with an acute inflammation when you put a brace on. So it's kind of one of those everybody wants one. It's like I think there might be some better things for you. Taping's a really good one just to unload it. But then people sometimes start relying on the tape and the goal that we the thing we want people to understand is that those are short term it's like a it's like a boot, right? If you fracture something, it's not a fracture, right? But it's like you broke a bone, you put a you put a boot on, right? You don't want to keep wearing the boot, right? You gotta let the tissue heal and reload it. And that's where sometimes you run into issues with patients and braces. They just want to keep wearing the brace. No, don't do that. Because that that can that may cause some proprioceptive issues, which is a whole nother conversation if you use that too long potentially i think one other thing i wanted to bring up in this category is kind of the story of patellofemoral pain when you know one of one of the this is a good good campfire story <laughs> it's not going to be that good of a story i'm going to sit sit down kids get the i'm not a great storyteller i'm just kidding <laughs> what's basically gone on over the years is okay tons of people are getting this kind of vague anterior medial lateral knee pain What's going on? Okay, these people have weak quadriceps muscles, or they have pain with knee extension. All right, let's give everyone knee strengthening. Let's do straight leg raises. Let's load their quads. Let's do all this open chain stuff. Let's do all this closed chain stuff just to strengthen the quad. The quad's the problem. Let's fix it. Then they do these huge studies with tons of people. Some people get better. Some people get don't. Ultimately, quad strengthening comes out in the wash of like, it may or may not help. Then they're like, you know what? Let's, let's think about something else. Let's look at how the foot is moving and see if the foot rolling in or rolling out is playing a role in patellofemoral pain. So then they try to affect the shoe with all these different orthotics or these posts or these wedges. And then they do the same thing, the same study, and the same results come out. Some people got better, some people don't. So therefore, the results are like, boom, nothing, it may or may not help. No change, ultimately. Then they're like, okay, let's go up top. Let's look at the hip. Are they weak in some of these rotating muscles? glute med or these small external rotating muscles is that playing a role in because their femur is starting to rotate because that is seen internal rotation of the femur so then they give everybody hip strengthening and then you get the same results again where some people got better some people don't ultimately the results come out in the wash the problem is not that these things don't work it's how do we pair the right treatment to the right person and That's why on this episode, we're not going to be able to give you guys, here's your exercises. If you have patellofemoral pain, here are the exercises you should do because it would be just, it would just be rolling the dice and you would have to get lucky. And we, that's not what we're about here. Patellofemoral pain syndrome is not a big deal. It's not usually a surgery inducing thing most of the time. And you just have to figure out what the right 
treatment path is for you. And sometimes that genuinely takes trial and error. That's an unfortunate reality, but it's a reality. Yeah. And go ahead. It's all these things, all these things work. There's been some wonderful, so previously, you know, Nathan mentioned, everybody's like, no, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. Then there's been really some very, very smart people who've done some great systematic reviews on patellofemoral pain, especially in runners. And what they've found, again, is what he just said is, hey, each one of these things are going to work for subgroups. Overall, there is no treatment that just fixes everything. That's not how it works. We know the quad is really important to stay strong, right? The quad is a is the primary mover uh, and stabilizer of the knee joint. Yes, we know you need strong hips. We know you need optimal foot movement. Which one of these is driving your symptoms? You're going to have to be evaluated, and you might have to do some trial and error to figure out which one is it. Because it and it's it may be one, it may be one or two, right? So it's not specific overall. It's very person dependent. It's like it's kind of like. Um, a really great example of where healthcare is going is kind of like all these, you know, protocols and these certain things we go, oh, like if somebody has this thing, I always do this. Like, no, you got to listen to the patient and figure out what what's happening to them as an individual, what what complicated factors are coming together that really influence their symptoms, right? And as we know, pain isn't just straightforward. There's lots of things that influence pain. So that's it's a really good example of of how you really need to take an individual approach for you to figure out what's driving this to get this where you need to be. And oftentimes, yeah, it is frequently yeah conditioning, making sure you've got halfway decent mechanics, make sure your strength is good. It's kind of an overall arching term, but it's got to be specific. And that's what the literature is going. Hey, there's subgroups we haven't quite identified exactly who does it from like an overall research standpoint. Clinically, though, that's where you can kind of get at this a little bit better. Right. I think a couple other interesting things, um, just when we look deeper into anatomy and mechanics, one of the things that I test in my runners or just people with patellofemoral pain presentations is looking at what level of knee flexion do they have their pain. And the reason I do this is because the loading of the patella and the femur changes as we go into more flexion. So if your knee is, you know, in... you know, full extension versus full flexion, the position. So if your if your patella is a circle, the position that's loaded and the amount of which that patella is loaded at those in those different positions changes. So when you when you bend your knee to 90 degrees, you're going to be loading the higher part of your kneecap because it slides down. When your knee is more extended, you're going to be loading the bottom part of your kneecap. So if somebody's having pain closer to extension, that cues me into looking at some structures further down on the knee versus if someone's having more pain with deep squatting, I'm going to be looking more towards the top of the patella and the structures more towards the top of the knee. And so you have to, I think, considering running specifically, a lot of times we're not going beyond 45, 50 degrees of knee flexion. And so you're looking at the kind of that mid portion of the patella being loaded to um, that inferior portion. And that's where those fat pads sit, which I think is intriguing, as well as where kind of some of those plica come out. So the interaction between where the compression is higher through the kneecap and the structures that surround it, I think, give us some clues as to what's going on. I've had a couple instances where people who have pain at 60, 55, 40 five to 50 degrees of knee flexion, but don't have pain at 30 or more, but they want to keep running. I have them run a little stiffer for a while. And 
from a shoe tool usage, softer shoes can create that kind of stiffening agent. And I've referenced this in previous podcast episodes, but I, I see that as a potential tool for people who have pain with a little bit deeper knee flexion. Um, they need, they might need for the short term, a slightly stiffer gait, which seems counterintuitive. I get it. And that's also the paradox of cushioning, but that's where that very cushioned shoe might be a little bit of a tool for that time until you can calm down your knee um, to function a little bit better in those deeper flexed positions. Now, have you found the opposite to be true where those maybe that have it with a little less range, if you give them a firmer shoe, they tend to flex more or they tend to feel find that as much or not much? I haven't mainly because they have to move through extent, extended position regardless of how deep they go and running in a constant flex position is not running, (laughs) like running crouched the whole time. So I haven't found it so much, so much that way more. So once they're better, they can just choose whatever shoe they want from firmness. But I have seen some benefit of a softer shoe, um, for helping and, or just cues to run a little bit stiffer. Uh, for a time, for a time, not not long term. So I, th- I think that's fascinating. Also, when it comes to treatment, the other thing that we consider beyond just strength and mobility in these areas, obviously you need motion around your knee. You don't want the muscles to be too tight because that adds compression. Um, but And you don't just need to be strong. You have to know how to use it. And so there have been things that have been found in people who have patellofemoral pain. Um, people who have patellofemoral pain, they have changes in the timing of the activation of their quadriceps muscles. So instead of the whole thing coming on at once, the medial side or the inside of their quad activates after the outside of their quad. The um, glute max, your amount of activation for people who have patellofemoral pain is different than those who don't have patellofemoral pain. So it's not just, you know, how strong you are, it's are you using it right because these people with patellofemoral pain are having delayed activation of their glutes when they're running. And we've talked about the role of gluteals as a pre-activator to help with shock absorption. And so uh, if you're having delayed activation of that, you're not going to have controlled shock absorption. And that's where that knee can take a lot of uh, repetitive loading and high stress. So then comes the question, what kind of things do you think about when you think about retraining muscular activation? Are you asking me? Yeah, I'm asking. Oh, you. I was just like loving that, just listening. It was great as audience. Oh, um, <laughs> I'm lulling you to sleep. I, no, so I'm, I'm just like listening. It's it's in lecture mode. No, <laughs> um, I think one of the common things we and I, I say this just having learned this from Chris Powers in terms of getting people to kick that stuff on. This is going to be very different than strengthening. Although strength does can play strengthening can help with neuromuscular recruitment. Um, one of the common ones that I love using is isometrics, right? And using those as a way to kind of get, and it's not just, hey, hold. And so isometrics, as to define that, is when you do an exercise, but you hold the position, the, the, the muscle does not, ch- or the joint does not change range. You just keep it in a single point. And it's a constant contraction. Um, we've seen from some evidence that when you do isometrics, it, if you're actively contracting the muscle and using it, there it really improves that neuromuscular um, that cortical firing rate, um, that doesn't necessarily change your movement pattern. That's a whole different story, right? This is, it's very specific to this, but in terms of getting people to, Hey, can you kick that on a little faster? Isometrics may be a way to utilize this, but you're going to have to make sure you're actually contracting that. So this gets, this could be a whole nother conversation on, are you actually able to feel it contract? Can you get it to kick on voluntarily? That's when we talk about, Hey, activation stuff. Then 
once you've got that, there's a whole progression for that. But go, hey, can you start doing strengthening with that? Can you start doing some um, plyometrics, right? Training your brain to go, now you know how to use this. Can you use it faster and get it to kick on what it is supposed to, right? But as I think, hopefully, as audience members, you're going, wow, they're talking about like these billion different things for all these things. That's why we talk about, yeah, our our brains as we're going through and working with patients is like we've already got the subjective and trying to figure out what's the tissue source, where did this come from, what 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 got this through, and then going, hey, is this a coordination issue? Is this a strength issue? Is this a mobility issue? Where of those things is this coming from? Is this actually coming from a knee? From the knee? Is it being driven from the foot? Is it being driven from the hip? And people really get onto onto high horses. and They can get really combative. Um, and you'll see this at conferences too. People will like scream at each other about: Is it coming from the foot? Is it coming from the hip? Is it the knee? And the answer is: Guess what? It's going to be person dependent. That's part of being a clinician and looking at this is what makes it. You know, unique. If it was the same thing, this would be super boring, right? None of us, we'd last a couple of years and go, I'm done. But it's always unique to the individual. And so it's not to scare you. It's to go, hey, you know, if you've been having this for a little bit, you might need to start experimenting and saying, hey, how does my knee respond? Or you might need to go see someone who really can help evaluate and figure out what's driving this. Right. Yeah, I think you hit a lot of really good things there and when it comes to the muscular activation isometrics i think people everyone's done clamshells like every runner has done clamshells but the the type of clamshell matters and you talk about isometrics and that that can mean like a full minute of holding a specific position making sure that you're activating the right muscle because people who aren't using their glutes don't like to use them even when you're doing exercises to isolate that muscle therefore there are tools that PTs and running clinics typically have like surface EMG to make sure that you're actually activating the right muscle. And so like when I, when I'm working with people in the clinic, I'll put on EMG, we'll do a clamshell, and then we find the positioning that actually activates it and have them hold for 30 seconds or a minute and actually multiple times. And Chris Powers has his whole protocol and stuff that ends up doing five minutes of holding for your training multiple times a day. You talked about the cortical firing. That means firing in the brain. Yep. I'm going to nerd out for just yeah, like for one it. second and you do a mini deep dive. So when you talk about cortical firing, basically what goes on in the brain, <clears throat> we have a lot of different regions. One of them is the motor cortex. Inside of the motor cortex has something called the homunculus. The homunculus is the general pattern in which the cells are mapped within the motor cortex. And they make this little like human thing. The more, anyway, you should look it up. Look up the homunculus. Point being, there are are pockets of cells that are dedicated to each individual muscle in the body. What they what they started to look at in people who've had strokes is we just had cell death within part of the brain. What can we do to recover parts of the brain that have died or use other parts of the brain to compensate for that? And so they found with those people, with people who've had strokes, that if you did isometric exercises, you had parts of the brain that weren't normally for like the biceps muscle start to wake up and become dedicated to that muscle. And they measure that through TMS, transmagnetic cranial stimulation, really fun stuff. Um, But they then took that people who were in the ortho realm and said, Hey, can we do the same thing with athletes? And the answer ultimately was yes. So they would map the brain. They would say, Hey, this, you know, this surface area is dedicated to the glute med. They would do a week of clamshell exercises and other glute med exercises for one week. 
And in this study, they were doing it four times a day. <laughs> so it was a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, usually not feasible for people. But in one week, that so- the size of the area significantly increased, which means that there's more cells available to fire that particular muscle. And so Matt talked about it basically like primes your brain to be ready to use a muscle that you need with running, that pre-activation of your gluteals. So if you use it for a long time, you will grow the amount of cells in that area. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to use them, but that's the next next part is retraining your running movements. And this is obviously, this is not just something you can go out and have success with, but it takes very specific training. But that is where something like cadence manipulation, if done right in the right people can be effective because increasing your cadence by 5% has been shown to increase pre-activation of your gluteal muscles. So if you combine something like uh, doing isometric exercises for a period of time, creating a capacity within those muscles, and then pairing it with some sort of retraining that increases pre-activation from a neuromuscular standpoint, you can put those things together and hopefully have some benefit. The reason we talk about gluteals and pre-activation is, we've talked about this before, but they're shock absorbing and they work in more than one plane. So they help you know, with hip extension and hip flexion. They also help with femur internal external rotation. And that's important because femur internal external rotation affects the rotation at the knee. And so that's why the hip's important. And again, that's why the foot is important because if the foot is rolling in or out too much, that's going to change the rotation at the knee as well. So there's, I'm, I'm done nerding out a little bit on the homunculus and motor cortex. Um, but I think that's part of why this is super important. And so there are basically anatomical features, biomechanical features, and neuromuscular control features that all can play into why you're having patellofemoral pain. And that's why you can't just look up what's the best exercise for patellofemoral pain or runner's knee and get an answer that's going to work for you. And you might get lucky, which is awesome, but you can't just send it to your friend and say it's going to guaranteed work for them too. So, And hopefully this helps you understand why this has been so confusing in the medical community because, you know, Everyone wants a single answer, right? Whether you're a runner, whether you're the scientist, whether you're the physician, whether you're a PT, that doesn't matter. Everybody wants one answer. So everybody loves jumping on one train. That's just not how the body works, especially the knee joint. And as as Nathan has kind of talked about how complex the knee joint is, right? It's one of the few places where you have three different bones interacting, right? So you have the femur up top, tibia, Plus a floating bone, right? So your patella is just sitting there. And how all those three interact, right? So you have influences from the hip, from the femur, right? So some people, a mentor used to say that the knee is half of the hip and half of the foot, right? Because you got the femur and the tibia coming together, right? Plus the patella, whatever percentage you want to put there. So there's a lot going on. And it's often this this middle child that kind of gets beat up from other things going on. So you just got to make sure you really evaluate and figure out what's what's driving it. Well, we'll, we'll close it there. There's a lot more that we could talk about and more specifics that we could dive into each of those different categories, but we really wanted to bring some nuance to the conversation. No, and and just kind of share our viewpoint that runner's knee is not the same for everybody. And some people might have success with certain treatments that others might not. It's not this scary diagnosis. Usually you can keep running uh, while you have it. You just have to find the right management strategies to do so. So just be smart when you're running. Maybe find a fun PT friend who also runs, and then you can just steal information from them. Just kidding. But maybe. Thank you guys for listening tonight or today or this morning, whenever you're listening. 
And if you want to check out more of our thoughts on the Horizon 6, you can see our review at doctorsofrunning.com. You can always be following us on, um, what are we on? <laughs> Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube. Oh, Fox going to be so upset. got a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> LinkedIn, <laughs> you, for the professionals out there for running, from running companies, or if you're interested in that, we're also, Bach does some great stuff on LinkedIn. But yeah, Instagram, face, Facebook, Pinterest. What are we missing? Are we still, did he Twitter. Twitter. All kinds of stuff. He does yeah, a bunch of we're stuff. on obviously on YouTube, all these different locations. Yeah, pretty much anywhere you'll probably find us. You can find us, and if if you want to really get in contact with us, please reach out to Doctors of Running Podcast at gmail dot com. Uh, we also have a support uh, link through. I think you can find it in the show notes through Anchor, which is the platform that we we post through. Uh, so if you if you do want to support us uh, one time or monthly to help keep this content coming, feel free to do that. But we don't expect that from you guys. We hope to continue providing this to you for free um, as much as we can. But have a great night, and we will talk to you all next time. Bye.